Hey folks, on today's episode of The Business of Freelancing, we're going to dive into client onboarding. What it means, what it means for each of us, how we've approached it in different ways over our businesses and clients, and how you can really customize, iterate, and improve onboarding over time. I think you're going to love this episode. Hey folks, today on our panel, we have me, Kai Davis. We're joined by Meg Cumby. Hello. And Eric Dietrich. Hi, everybody. So when it comes to client onboarding, how would you grade yourself? Like one to 10, what uh, what score would you give? Starting off just for me, I'd say I'm like a maybe a four, maybe a 4.5. Like I definitely feel like I know what to do, but getting the implementation in place and moving lines forward through it, there's always stuff left to do and stuff left to uh, iterate on and develop. How about you all? Uh, that's a hard question. I mean, for me, the projects are often, let's say, just for context, they're smaller, like, you know, they're not often in the five or six figures. Uh, you know, there's a couple of five figures, but, you know, they're usually in the four figure range and often, you know, not that big. So, and for new clients, it's often a, a smaller, smaller engagement, um, so in that context, I don't know, maybe like a five out of 10, you know, I've got some, some processes in place, you know, remembering to always, you know, put, the, you know, re- rely on those processes is the, I think is the key for everybody. I might say a six. So for our business hit subscribe, um, we have uh, Aaron who handles account management. So she does onboarding. Um so some of this is, uh, you know, it's not directly me involved anymore. We have welcome collateral, like a welcome bouquet that we send to clients and it kind of lays out who their points of contact are and a lot of different things. So I think that um, I have to give myself a fairly good score or our business a fairly good score because uh, not only is that kind of down and um, there's like uh, collateral and things involved, but it's repeatable. Like Aaron could train someone else to do it. So um, I think there's room for growth and improvement in that. I don't know if currently it completely explains everything or clears up all the client's questions or establishes everything. We think of it as a work in progress, but it is fairly sophisticated. Like there's a clear procedure and between that and a sales call, we're establishing how we operate, how working with us goes, et cetera. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, if, if I think back to years ago when I was just doing like freelance app dev or what have you, there was no onboarding. It was just, you know, you take on the work and have some kind of discovery call and then start going. So I feel like conceptually that's come a long way, at least uh, with businesses I preside over. And one thing you hit on there, I just want to echo, starting to turn it into a process, like documenting it somewhere, be it, you know, on paper, in a Google Doc, in a Notion, just someplace that says, okay, you know, these are the four steps and we can improve and change them over time, but this is what we start with and what we always try to do can be such a huge step forward. It just makes it easier to remember and not, you know, dig back in the memory banks. Oh, what did we do three months ago or a year ago? Last time we onboarded someone. Instead, we've at least captured some version of the process to iterate on. How did you get started with uh, uh, capturing that process, Eric? Was it you writing it down, delegating it to someone else? I guess, how did you get that first version on paper? It was the delegation. Um, when we brought uh, so in the early days of hit subscribe, um, I did everything that was client facing. My wife and I partnered on the business and she was kind of internal, like managing, um, 
well, the business started as just me writing blog posts and her editing them. But as we brought people on internally, um, she would handle, you know, kind of the management of the author process and the editors and stuff that were creating the content. And I was doing everything external. And um, I kind of knew our sales pitch and I knew what we would do, but it was bringing on Aaron, who we hired specifically to do account management. It was that at that point, like it almost had to get documented because she was going to be picking it up. So the documentation around that initially was rudimentary. Um, as it improved, she drove a lot of that because she was recognizing I'm often answering the same questions. Um, so the creation of some of the collateral, the elaboration of the documentation was her, but it was really kind of that moment of hiring that had happened. So I think if you were looking at, um, getting better at client onboarding, the thing you might do is almost pretend that you were about to make a hire to do it, even if you weren't and like document what that person would need to know. Awesome way of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could say I discovered that other than accidentally. It wasn't like I thought of that. It's just kind of in <laughs> retrospect. <laughs> I think that's that's true of most realizations in businesses. <laughs> you just discovered along the way, oh, <laughs> so the design comes after you've come across something by accident sometimes. Meg, how about for you? Is your onboarding like uh, documented? Does it live in the brain? I guess since you're a solo shop, what does that process look like? Yeah, combination of column A and column B a little bit. Um, uh, you know, thinking about onboarding, you know, what it actually encompasses, I think, you know, and, and when it starts, uh, for me, it would start right before, uh, like after the client and I agree to, to work together. Um, so um, because the process is pretty simple, it's, you know, there's some documentation, you know, and, and um, it's pretty simple where it, you know, uh, after we agree to work with together, I send a welcome packet, which kind of encompasses what some people would find in a proposal since it's a productized service. But, you know, here's what we'll do, what you get, confirmation of the price we've talked about, um, and then outline next steps, which are, you know, I send an invoice, they pay it, they connect me with the needed contact, and I send some background questions for them to answer, which are pretty brief again. So, like, that's, you know, and that's usually for a sub $2,000 uh, service that's, you know, often you know, how else a new client when what we'll be working on. So um, the most like, you know, those questions exist, you know, the documentation, obviously the welcome packet, I keep that pretty simple and that exists. And uh, so it's, I, 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 I'm sure I've had that written down, but it's so ingrained in my memory now that it's just, yeah, here's the steps we go through. <laughs> Especially with like a productized service, I think it's natural that the onboarding just sort of becomes part of the service overall since like, hey, they pay, they're getting this experience. It kind of isn't a separate thing. It's part of what they're paying for. And I guess just flows forward. Yeah, if I think about it, really, the onboarding is written in the welcome packet because it has the next steps in there. So, so uh, yeah, it's written down for me and the client so they know exactly what's going to happen next. One, uh, As I was thinking about uh, uh, this topic in this episode, one thing that came to mind is like the difference between, say, a $500 project and the onboarding you do a $500,000 project in the onboarding you do. On one level, there is a bit of difference there. Like for a $500 project, I'm going to send them a PDF. They get an automated email. Hello, thank you for working with me. Share me on this. Click here. With a $500,000 project, like me and my imaginary team of expert consultants will fly out to their location, do an onboarding, do a kickoff, talk with them, have you know the celebratory beer and steak as every large project has. But really within that, like the details, the actions we're taking, 
it's kind of identical. I'm setting expectations. I'm laying out boundaries. I'm sharing information and requesting information. I'm confirming the timeline of the next steps. And no matter the magnitude of the project, even like the $50 million project, it's still those same beats. Nothing really changes there. How about for you guys in your own businesses? Do you see something similar or does that resonate with you? Yeah, for me, um, like with hit subscribe or our customer lifetime value tends to be usually in the six figures, um, maybe sometimes uh, five figure uh, one off engagements. And um, for us, you know, so for anyone listening out there, people in custom app dev is in particular would understand this. But if you are doing a lot of, you know, lengthy custom projects, uh, you'll know kind of intuitively that you're going to have at least a call, if not an in-person meeting for something that's in the five figures, six figures plus. If it's like three figures or four figures, that might just all get done over email. So there is kind of this sense that the bigger the project, the more high touch the sales process is. But I think that there are elements that are common across that, you know, for instance, almost without exception, because we're in that middle area for hit subscribe, our sales cycle is a series of emails, then one, maybe two phone calls, and then we work together. Um, And if we were for some reason negotiating like an absolutely enormous, like seven figure content uh, process, I think a lot of our onboarding would be the same. We just might, you know, as you mentioned, uh, fly out or, you know, have the steak dinner or what have you ahead of it, but it would largely be the same kind of activities, uh, expectation setting, kind of defining the rules of engagement, how you do and don't work. Um, uh, all of that would go on regardless. I mean, that's, I think that's true. I mean, like, I, I mean, I don't like what, what you would even like, it, what would be the definition of onboarding, you know, that just so for people that may not have like thought about this mm. in the exact term, like, Yeah, that's, you know, actually to back up, if I think about um, myself, like in the early days of freelancing, just kind of doing like freelance app dev or or coaching, the kind of things I was doing, I might have thought of this of like, well, what do you mean onboarding? It's like they, you know, have an RFP or whatever. And like you, you answer the RFP or you talk to someone and you discuss and maybe they hire you or maybe they don't. And then you do what they say. Like, so uh, it might be worth clarifying, like, what is onboarding for people that don't um, have that experience? Uh, and I, I guess I, my take on it would be, even if you don't aren't aware of it, you're doing some form of onboarding. It's just that probably what's mostly happening is that it's your client defining how everything's going to work rather than you. And the thing is that, that you might want to become aware of is that's not inevitable. As you get like more mature, as you kind of um, get a standard operating procedure in the business that you're doing, you'll start to have, you know, it might come initially in the form of rules, like I don't answer email on the weekends, but gradually you build up a series of things uh, that you do that are true of how you work with clients. And then it's kind of like, if nothing else, um, introducing clients to those rules, so to speak. So uh, setting expectations, informing them how you work, et cetera. Um, So I'm kind of like surrounding it and defining it with examples more than like an actual definition, but that's kind of how I think of it, like um, the rules of engagement, if you will. And if you don't define it, they will. So it's better if you do. Yeah, very much agreement for me. Uh, and you're right, Eric, like it kind of is squishy. It could encompass a ton. It could encompass just like they have paid. I have requested access to GitHub. We are done. But you're right. Like in my mind, onboarding is really intentional time to define 
the parameters, the boundaries, and the expectations on both sides within a working relationship. Uh, the dating metaphor always comes to mind with onboarding. Like, you go on your first or second date, you're still saying like, oh, no, I don't text on the weekend because, you know, it's my personal time or I love yoga, whatever it might be. Hello, please date me. But uh, uh, <laughs> it's kind of exactly the same when it comes to onboarding a client. Here's what it's like to work with me. Here's how to get in touch. These are common questions I have for clients. Ask me the common questions you have. Here's what other folks have asked me in the past. Just to make sure you're on that same sort of footing or on that same level when it comes to, okay, what is this multi-month or multi-year working relationship going to be? Not to say it's locked in stone with onboarding, but onboarding is at least an intentional time to say, hey, let's have these important conversations. Let's level set in terms of communication, responsibilities, who should ask you know, the dumb questions that come up that always come up, just so everybody's on that same plane. Yeah, so uh, does it um, uh, include the sales call, I think is a good, you know, I, I kind of think, yes, it's almost to me, I think of onboarding as once for us, there's a sales call, that's kind of when things are serious. So I conceptually think of me getting ready for the sales call, the sales call itself, and then like sending a proposal and some of the stuff we do. So everything from sales call through, okay, now we're working together, I think of as onboarding personally. I don't know. Do you, is that kind of the right timeline for both of you? Or does it start earlier? Interesting. What What do you think, Kai? And then I'll lay in. I, I, I'm not opposed to like sales overlapping or being part of onboarding. Since you're absolutely right, it's when you start to find like, oh no, we're only available two days a week or we're here no matter what you need. We're in Slack. Ask us the question. So there definitely are onboarding elements that move into the sales process. Uh, what, what comes to my mind, though, is I often think of onboarding as extending into, honestly, the second month of the engagement, since there's going to be meetings, there's going to be conversations, you're going to realize three weeks in, oh, I did not tell them this very important thing. Let's have a call, have a DM, just catch them up to it. So if we're saying onboarding can, you know, move into those initial conversations and sales calls, I think it also could spread out or some elements of it spread out to month two of working together as you start to get everything moving forward, just because there always are parts that need to be explained or need to be synced up on. Yeah, it's interesting how it could be very much that moving target. And I think people can define it for what makes sense to them. For me, yeah, like I would probably do it after. But yeah, it depends on how you define Like, you know, if you're thinking about onboarding as setting expectations uh, and, and, and setting up a great experience for both parties, um, you could see it as starting with the sales call uh, for sure. Um, and really, even as far back as, you know, you're setting that expectation as your website. For me, I've always kind of considered it more like, you know, if I'm thinking how I'm defining it and like, like I said, there's obviously fuzzy, it is more more after um, maybe at the sales call point and then through to the point um, where I get that background information and like the work is starting on, you know, the, the official what they are paying for has started. That for me is because I've got a productized service that's you know very defined deliverable. So, um, and let's say it's not a coaching arrangement or it's not a custom, uh, often not a custom arrangement. So that's where I sort of put the parameters, but like it could shift either way. And discovery, I guess, within a project also kind of overlaps with onboarding since you're requesting information, sharing them on information. I think of my uh, podcast tour service where I get clients, you know, booked on a dozen to two dozen podcasts that they're looking to appear on that reach our audience. And we start off me requesting information, me laying out the engagement of the next steps. But 
even at the start of the second month, we're still saying, okay, let's run through a real pretend it's live podcast recording to make sure we could overcome unexpected things and smoke test these different topics. So there is an element of still leveling up that client to working with you that far into the engagement. I, I'm just doing a reread of Kathy Sierra's excellent book, Badass. And one thing that comes to mind through this conversation is really onboarding serves to help make the client badass at working with you. You've worked with, dear listener, us on this recording, dozens of clients, but a client working with you is the first time ever working with you. So onboarding helps say, here's how to work well with me. Here's how to make sure this is a great relationship. And if you're not spelling out, you know, I don't work on Fridays or, you know, submit through the form. Please don't email me if you find a bug. It's going to be a hard relationship to get started. But if you lay out these expectations, shared expectations, it becomes even easier just to level that client up over time. Yeah, I like that view. Like, and not just because, like, we were sort of saying, like, often when we're talking about our onboarding, it's about setting expectations of, like, do not, you know, like, this is the limits of what I'll do. But, but like I said, that does help frame it more as, like, okay, yes, it's not just me putting up my boundaries. It's making sure that we both have a great experience and that the, that everything's clear on, yeah, how things will go so that, you know, everybody's happy with, or not happy necessarily, but everybody's, uh, not the the expectations are not mismatching with the experience. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that brings kind of um, you know I think of it it's it's paradoxical, but um, as part of onboarding, and I think why I conceptually think of it starting in or around the sales call, is there's also an element of disqualification there potentially, as in if you're saying you know I don't uh, answer calls on the weekends or what have you, if that's going to be a deal breaker for that client, even though passing on business is always a bummer, you want to surface that right away and say this isn't going to be a fit. So as you're establishing this is how you can best work with us, um, there's also this element of assessing fit, and part of the onboard process is going to be that it's a lot better for both of you to learn now than six months from now that it's not a fit. Um, So I do think there is this element of, um, you know, like on the optimistic side, we're ensuring it's a fit. Here's how to work well with us. Um, Here's how we're going to make sure this is a home run. But then on the flip side, like, or, you know, maybe we're not the right uh, solution for you, um, I think is an important part of the process. Yeah, full and enthusiastic agreement for me on that point. In a sense, if you're onboarding a week or a month in returns, oh, this is not a good relationship. I view that as a success for onboarding because if you didn't service it then, maybe it doesn't service until month three, month six, or when you go to collect a testimony and they're like, no, we pass because, oh, we weren't a good fit. We didn't identify it. And a better onboarding process would have let us surface this or address it and eliminate it. Oh, I could compromise in this way. You'll compromise in that way great, this is now a fit again. But if you aren't doing onboarding, you don't really have that space to surface those objections or figure out how to problem solve through them. Yeah, I think I think in designing your onboarding process, you want to make it like, think about like, you know, it's not only about making sure that you're setting your bet the boundaries that you need to set so that you can perform well and and have a, you know, be able to, um, to be the best you can do for it. But like, also just, yeah, surfacing those early really does make sense to um, so that people like you're really not causing problems later on. Switching switching tax for a second. If somebody in the audience is you know listening, they're saying this onboarding thing sounds kind of good. Might have headed off a couple of those disaster clients in the past. I, I'm curious what we each would recommend as sort of like the minimal viable onboarding. Just get started with this. You definitely don't want to make it too fancy or overwrought or over engineered at the start, but. What are the essential elements that we each see as being, well, 
essential. For me, the thing that I've always tried to like short circuit or uh, uh, pull back from has been a kickoff call since sometimes it's like, oh, I don't want to get on yet another call. But time and time again, I've seen just getting on a video call, spending 20 or 30 minutes talking with the other person, seeing their face, hearing their voice, letting them see you are an actual person, not just an avatar and some uh, flare based emojis in Slack really helps develop a better relationship there. And so whenever I get that urge, you know, maybe I'll just skip the kickoff call this time. I'm starting to see that as a signal. Oh, no, I'm having a little resistance to it. This is probably when I especially need that kickoff call, when we need to get on the line and just have a chat. How about for you guys? Similar experience or other things uh, come to mind as those onboarding essentials? Agreed on that. Would you like kickoff call and client qualification call? Would those be separate for you? For me, they would. I think of that client qualification call as more of that, you know, sales call. Hey, let's see if you are a good fit for this service and kick off is more. Hey, now that you've paid, let's talk through the nuts and bolts. What happens next? The timeline for this engagement and answering those questions. Makes sense. If I'm, I'm trying to think through what I would consider, I guess, in retrospect, our business is like minimum viable um, onboarding. Uh, I think that establishing the particulars around communication. So when and how you're available, you know, as a chat phone call, um, that's a big one. I think, um, laying out the next steps, uh, you know, okay. So we're engaging one, two, three, four, this is what's going to happen. And then another thing that comes to mind is, um, getting agreement on essentially the scope of the project. So one of the things that we do is um, hit subscribe. It's relatively easy to sort of build the custom packages that we do around creating content for clients, but to call out exactly what it is, you know, we're delivering this many blog posts a month and maybe a white paper every this often or whatever. Here's exactly what it is we've agreed and um, what some of the specifics around it are. And here's the price. Um, so I think all of those things kind of come together. What happens next, kind of what the rules of engagement are, how we communicate and, um, what does the project look like, you know, in very well-defined uh, terms? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. I think for me, like uh, the kickoff call, mm-hmm. definitely for anything I used to, I think I used to do uh, like for me, the, the background questions kind of like I get the information I need uh, for my productized service rather than a kickoff call I get through there. But I, 100% agree that you need to talk to the cl- like so I I'll talk to them. I think I guess I kind of combine my qualification call and my kickoff call. Uh, once I get a sense of if they're a good sense, then I will get some. It will do a little bit of preliminary information on that call. So I guess I sort of combine those two for a smaller service um, that may, might make more sense. Um, I think I I I don't think I'd add much communication. Um, Certainly setting up uh, expectations around if you haven't done it in a proposal around uh, when you're getting paid and how, how you're getting paid, that, that would be another one maybe to, to add in there. I should, I, I, it's, it's actually a really good time during our onboarding to, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, it's a really good time to set the expectation that you'll be asking for a testimonial or a case study. <laughs> mm, excellent point. <laughs> As somebody who, who does social, helps people get social proof for a living, I don't think I can miss that. It's, it's so much easier if you set that expectation at the very beginning uh, to do that. <laughs> I'm really kind of interested in that. I mean, like that's, uh, so do you recommend that people 
kind of build in and say, hey, here's the terms of success. And if that goes well, I'd love to get a testimonial about it, something like that when they're yeah, sort of the line. I, I like the basic line. Like, and again, this depends on the scale. Like, what kind of what scale of clients are you working for? What's your service? You know, you like. Uh, but um, I've seen as as uh, complex as having it in the contract terms uh, that there'll be a good faith effort um, for um, asking you know to provide a testimonial. So you know, if if you're you know at a certain level that might be, but really it can be as simple as like in a welcome material saying near the end of our engagement, I'll ask for feedback, you know, and indicate how that will happen. I like doing it on a wrap up call. Um, and with your permission, use that feedback as part of a testimonial or case study that like you can review and, you know, well, but like, you know, so it's just sort of setting up that expectation that you'll be making the ask, um, you know, assuming things go well, like, you know, but like certainly you'll ask for feedback either way. And then like saying that with your permission, we'll use it as a testimonial that lets them know that they can say no later if they don't want, but at least they'll know that the ask is coming. Hmm. Helps avoid unexpected surprises too. It's not like, hello, we have three days left in this project. Please give me a testimonial. It's <laughs> You know, we've touched on this three or four times, maybe just once or twice, but we've raised it. And mm-hmm. they might not remember, but they at least know this has happened, that you'll be asking for a testimonial. One thing I've often seen recommended sort of in the same approach is saying that, oh, you know, I'm going to ask for referrals to two people that you'd love to see me work with as this project wraps up or if we hit these success metrics, just to, again, plant that early seed and have it be a natural segue into it as a project starts winding down or wrapping up. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly removes that awkwardness for you and them. Like, so now with the expectation, I like saying like, you've almost made now the commitment to get that stuff. Like, so now you can't not ask for it because you've already told them you're going to ask for it. So it sure. just removes, removes the awkwardness. And maybe that's a way to think about onboarding is just removing awkwardness for people and the, the opportunities for misunderstandings. That's, that's just in the interest of everybody. I love that framing of it. And in a sense, that gives a nice, natural way for a listener to iterate on their onboarding. Like, you know, document what you're already doing or what you want to be doing, run through it. And as you go through that engagement, make a note to yourself, okay, what felt awkward? Oh, when I, you know, sent them the invoice for the second leg, it felt a bit awkward. What could I do earlier on to outline how this is going to move forward or at least address these potentially awkward points and just you know, slowly smooth it over with time. It won't ever be perfect with one iteration, but it'll at least be heading in that direction. How to deal with scope changes. There's another thing to put in your onboarding. How, like what happens if the project deviates, the needs deviate from both of your expectations, (laughs) how you're going to handle scope changes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I think anytime like noting where there's friction during your projects and seeing if there's, can that, could that have been solved with better expectations set at the beginning or a better process set at the beginning? So this is something that just struck me as interesting because it, it comes up with um, with our business. But do you, um, in your businesses ever see a turnover in your client contact and then have to kind of re-onboard a new person that's coming up to speak? Because that is something that happens with us on a somewhat regular basis that our our former um, sponsor, if you will, leaves and then a new person comes in and we help them get up to speed and kind of rerun our onboarding. Is that common? Like, do you both experience that? I do not. Uh, I work with definitely smaller, more indie-based businesses. And so I won't, uh, typically the point of contact for me is the decision maker, is the sponsor. 
But what I do sometimes run into is we'll start off on project A, project A wraps up, and then they decide to move forward to project B. Maybe it's a one-off project into a recurring project. And so there are elements of re-onboarding them, resetting these expectations, but it's not as heavy as a lift uh, as the first time. Instead, it's like, oh, we were doing A, B, and C before. Now it's C, D, and E, no more A and B, and just sort of level setting again with that same person. How about for you, Meg? Yeah, turnover, not not as much of an issue because, yeah, usually I am working with um, smaller indie companies, so... Usually I'm working like with the people that don't, yeah, turn over as much. Um, so yeah, that's not so much of an issue. Um, I think again, like I said, like so what what I end up doing is often, you know, ha- having recurring um, th- them come back, not in a, like for other engagements. So uh, there's a very a, a much smaller. It's more like project onboarding than it is client onboarding. We've already talked. Um, certainly, it's it's good to have a sense of whether or not you're, something's changed since the last time you've worked with the person and do you need to re-onboard them with uh, new expectations or things like that. What's that process like for you and hit subscribe, Eric? Uh, typically, it's kind of as you were saying, it's not as heavy a lift um, because often – if somebody that's our, our main contact uh, transfers into a new role or leaves the company or something, their backfill is usually coming up to speed and um, they're leaning on us, you know, educate me about the prior history of this arrangement and you're, you're an incumbent. So you're in there as a favored vendor. So that tends to be easier, but we'll typically um, maybe offer, like w- there is some precedent to get on and essentially rerun our sales call. Like I have a deck that I run through Um with some information that's specific to the client and then some general information about how we work. So sometimes we'll actually get on a call and go through that, or we'll just send, you know, the, the collateral and agreements that we've sent in the past and do some explanations. So it's the same process as kind of sales and post-sales onboarding, except to a almost by definition, more receptive audience. Um, and I think, you know, if, if it's something that comes up for anyone, I would, uh, that's where, having like documentation and things that you share with the client comes in really handy because then it's kind of a no brainer. The new person emails you and says, Hey, how do you work? Oh, here you go. Uh, you know, you can read all about it. Let me know if you have any questions Uh, versus if you didn't have that collateral, then it's, Oh, well, you know, let's get on a phone call. And then that's kind of a more improvisational uh, conversation. And I remember this from a lot of years where um, without a deck, for instance, uh, I could do a pretty consistent sales call, but I might forget to cover a certain point or miss something. Um, so when it's documented, written down, and you have collateral, you don't forget things. So uh, I think if re-onboarding is something that's going to come up for you, um, having that stuff is is super valuable. Uh, huge yes for me. Uh, I've been you know doing consulting, freelancing, and contracting work for over a decade now. And I'm only at the point where I'm like, oh, you know, nicely designed collateral, nice, nicely designed resources. They provide so many benefits in terms of keeping me on script, making it easier and not like rewriting the same thing again and again and again for the client or the lead. Uh, uh, we could do an entire episode. We should do an entire episode on that sometime. But yeah, hugely valuable. If anybody out there is saying, you know, should I create these evergreen assets? 1000% yes. It, uh, it helps more than you think it will. Yeah. The importance of good templates too. And and like just having templates that I think I remember 
in earlier days, like, you know, re even, even though I used largely the same thing, like just re jigging a lot of the, <laughs> like not have, not having to have too many fields that you have to recustomize <laughs> because you, you can waste so much time on, on, on stuff. I actually, I like, for example, one thing I took out of my onboarding, cause I found I changed it so much was that my hours of work, number one, it doesn't really matter for the types of projects I do, whether I'm working from eight to four, my time or 10 to six, or like, it doesn't really matter. And what I found was actually that was causing more friction than anything. Cause if I am answered an email outside of those hours, then it looked like I was breaking, you know, then those boundaries don't matter. And so, yeah, it's more important. So yeah, just uh, keeping the customizable, like, you know, that's something that changes too, but yeah, keeping those customizable or like those more changing things, maybe somewhere, at least all in one place or like, so that you're not constantly rewriting things is, is huge. Something that I'll say too, that, that's hard to overstate is, if you have a documented scripted process for sales and then between sales and engagement and through the beginning of engagement, not only does all of that help you and potentially help you in business um, or at least make winning business more smooth, but it's like very persuasive to clients because, you know, if it's you and then some other people that are just kind of like uh, coming in and the sales call is almost them interviewing you uh, for those people, but you say, this is how I work. It kind of shows that you have encountered, that you have experienced, that you've encountered different scenarios in the past and that you are a pro at this and you know exactly how to walk them through it. And um, just from experience over the years, I can't tell you how differently that makes uh, sales and post sales go because um, I guess the adage I've heard a lot there is like, somebody is going to define that call. Somebody is going to get organized. And the default for a lot of clients is it'll be them. And then it's almost like they're giving you a job interview. But if you lead and you say, this is how we work, um, you know, here are how we handle these various situations, et cetera. The client flips into a more passive mode and says, oh, you know, this person knows what they're doing. Um, I'm going to defer to you on these things. And you wouldn't believe like some people might uh, think that this wouldn't even work with the enterprise. It does. It works with like companies and people um, or companies of all sizes, people at all levels of the org chart. If you lead with that organization and you demonstrate that you're experienced and organized, they will kind of naturally defer to how you're saying things should go. Yeah, it's a strong self-vote of confidence. I'm confident enough in my skills, my abilities, my sense of business to say, this is how I work best. And yes, we can customize the engagement or how we're working together depending on mutual agreement, but this is the starting spot. I always think of like the dentist in the dental office as a good comparison for the type of business I want to run. Not once have I gotten into the dental office and been like, so tell me about how you're working. And they're like, I don't know. What do you need? Having a deep <laughs> I'm, like, I'm scared. I want to run out of this dental office. But if they show up and they're like, we start with this, we do an inspection, we do a cleaning, da, da, da. If you have a cavity, da, da, da. And it shows like, oh, they have done this 10 million times. I don't have to even think. They will ask me when I need to share input. It's exactly the same for our clients. If somebody shows up and is like, how can you help? I don't know. Need some marketing? It's <laughs> it's not an expert level look. Agreed. That's a great analogy, by the way. You know, I, I sometimes <laughs> think of that in terms of like, you know, I don't know, you're 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 picking among a couple or a few housing contractors or something like fix your leaky basement. If one shows up and is like, um, all right, this is what I do. I run this inspection. It might be one of these two types of problems and so on and so forth. And then another one shows up and you're like, uh, is like, well, I don't know, show me what's going on. What do you want me to do? Um, 
they will inspire different levels of confidence, but like the dental metaphor, like I think like hits home a lot harder. Cause that's like a visceral terror. The idea of you show up at the dentist and they're like, Oh, what do you want done? What do you think I should do? Very quickly. <laughs> I don't want to go to the dentist office to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. What? One more sort of advanced move that I've done in the past. I don't do it currently just because business model has shifted. But when I was doing, when basically the bread and butter and the main thing I would sell is multi-month, typically three to nine month uh, marketing promotion, digital PR engagements, I would intentionally set aside, you know, 33 to 50% of that first month's payment and say, okay, this is now my budget for gifts, onboarding expenses, resources to send to the client. Because I also view onboarding as building a stronger, a stronger relationship with that client and just being able to set aside and say, okay, I got $500 in the bank here. Oh, I saw a client tweeted about enjoying this author. Let me see if I could get like a signed copy of a book and send it to them. Or, oh, we need to create this little asset or resource or, hey, let's send them a bottle of wine that just had an anniversary. It's just small touches you could do that help show a high level of polish and show attention. And for me, at least, it was a lot easier to spend that money when I said, oh, it's already set aside and not, ah, do I really want to spend this money? It could be my profit, yada, yada. So small thing, definitely not, you know, an intro or a beginner move. But for people selling larger ongoing projects, it can be useful to both think of onboarding again in that larger, longer time frame and set aside some cash, set aside a budget line item just so you could spend on things that relate to onboarding over that onboarding period. That's really interesting. I've not something that would have occurred to me, but um, that is, uh, you know, probably a, a, an unrivaled way to make a great impression on people is those types of touches. Also helps move over any sort of rough bits in the first month or two. Like, oh, you know, communication on that call was a bit messy, or I thought we were doing A and B, we're doing B and C, but you know, the relationship is good. They sent us this thing. It feels positive and feels like kind of a friendship or working friendship than, oh, they are, you know, vendor number 347. Let's get vendor 348 in here. Maybe they'll do a better job. Also helps with referrals and referral asks just to strengthen that relationship early on. So when you move into testimonial ask or referral ask, it feels, I'm not sure what word to use, not like they owe you something, but it just feels easier for them to reciprocate in that way. Generates the good feelings. Mm. Brand loyalty. (laughs) (laughs) Moving sort of into a wrap up here. One thing that stands out to me from our conversation here is there's sort of no absolute when it comes to onboarding. It's squishy, both in terms of what you can do or where you can start and squishy in terms of, well, where does it really start and end? For some of us, it starts within the sales call. For others, for me, it extends, you know, into that month too. So dear listener, if you're saying, hey, where do I get started? Well, I think just starting to document, you know, what you've been doing, what that standard operating procedure looks like and using that as that base template to iterate on really is the easiest and most successful way to get started. How about for you guys? What uh, what feels like the absolute essentials or the most important takeaways for a listener? I would say um, to get, if you have no concept of how to do your onboarding process, the very first thing I might start with is write down what are like non-negotiables or deal breakers for you. And I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't have an onboarding process that's just you telling a client 
what are deal breakers for you, but it's a, it's a great way uh, to get started. You know, what are the things that would just blow up an engagement that would be terrible? And you write those out because those are probably the easiest thing to come up with. And then once you've got that in place, that might start uh, you thinking about um, other aspects of getting to know the client and working together. So I'd say start with those because those will um, help you get in the spirit of what you're thinking, but then don't actually make this your official process until you know, there's some positive stuff to go alongside it. Here's how we don't work um, or how I don't work, but here's how I do. Um, and try to think of like, what would, was it Kai, you said like, um, make the customers awesome. I forget the name of the, the book, but Bass. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, balance that out. So it, it, here's what I don't do, but here's what I do. And here are some of the nice things that I've found valuable over the course of time and helping clarify things, you know, I have my patented discovery call or whatever it is. So start with the the non-negotiable bads and then balance those out with good. And then you've got, I think, the beginning of a, a pretty solid onboarding process that's just educating them about how to work with you. Yeah. I mean, plus one to everything you both said. I think as a starting place, like uh, writing down what you already do, at the beginning of, or like, you know, at the beginning of a new engagement and figuring out, like said, like where's even just, even just ha documenting that, or if you don't have a regular process, like figure out what might be commonalities and just try to, you know, put together a process. And then, um, yeah, I like the idea of starting with like a welcome packet, um, which can literally just be a PDF, like a couple pages of PDF and just to put that in like, here's how dear client, we're going to start working together. Uh, I think that is like a good one-on-one level step. There's certain things that are going to happen anyway, the payment communication, um, you know, what you need from them to start working together. Like, or like there's something that happens that, you know, what intentional or not, there's things that happen there. And so just documenting that those, how they happen and maybe start, doing those the same way each time and, and then letting the client know in a, in a, even just a PDF. That's a good way to start. I like it. How about, how about uh, uh, picks? Anybody have top of mind picks, resources, books, whatever you may have to uh, share with the listeners to help them along on their uh, business and freelancing journey. I'll start with uh, one of mine. I referenced it already in the call, but strong recommendation, go out and buy Badass by Kathy Sierra. It's a book really about making users awesome, but it extends so much beyond like, hey, how do I make this program or make a customer awesome to, hey, how do you make a client? How do you make somebody who's buying your services truly awesome, change them for the better? One of the most impactful books I've ever read, definitely on the top five list. So we'll have a link in show notes. Strong recommendation from me. How about you, Eric? I don't have anything topical this week for onboarding per se. Um I'm trying to remember. I've definitely read tidbits here and there about it, but I don't know if, if I could give a concrete book recommendation that would be good. But um, just as like a personal fun thing, um, I know a lot of people are probably familiar with The Expanse, you know, the sci-fi series and the books by um, pen name James S.A. Corey. What I discovered recently uh, is that James S.A. Corey is actually two people. And I read a book series by one of them whose name is Daniel Abraham. Um and it's in the it, the fantasy side of the fantasy sci-fi genre, but it was really enjoyable. And so I guess to me, it's almost like discovering 
this author who it's kind of a weird situation, but like, it's like discovering that there's this whole bunch of other books by this author that I liked. So in case anyone doesn't know that I can, you know, give a link to his site, but Daniel Abraham is his name and he's written a bunch of other books besides the expanse. And, and I definitely thought they were uh, a, a fun read. Hell yeah. Good tip and good recommendation. I did not realize it was sort of a uh, Voltron team up of authors. <laughs> How about for you, Nick? Topical or non-topical? Yeah, for you know, topical. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Calendly before, but like you know, for picking, getting, helping people to uh, offer times up for calls uh, or meetings. Um, Calendly. Uh, oh, I don't think there's a day that I don't use <laughs> this. Um, you know, there's a free plan for one type of event. I paid plan. I can say worth its weight in. Uh, in, well worth what, what what you pay for it. I think it's eight dollars US a month for the the lower tier of the PayPal. But just to be able to show people um, times available, like you can you can set your availability. It syncs with your Google Calendar, probably a couple other calendars, and like so that it won't you won't get double booked. It just removes that whole dance of here's three times I'm available. Are you available? No, <laughs> like it, that back and forth. And uh, yeah, I would not be able to uh, uh, live without that. So yeah, very handy for those kickoff and meetings and uh, uh, with the client. And I'll chime in. One thing I love using Calendly for, especially when it comes to onboarding is just setting up like a different meeting type. So I have a normal, like quick conversation one, and I'll just share that in Slack, share that in onboarding. But for this kickoff meeting, I'll define maybe it's a 90 minute meeting. Maybe I'm asking specific questions in that Calendly forum. Like, hey, you know, what are the top of mind questions? Where have, you know, consulting experiences gone poorly on your side before? Just to start surfacing some questions or some comments or topics for me to work into my agenda. So strong, enthusiastic plus one on Calendly. It's a powerful resource. And when you start using it for like, oh, what do I want to ask for this specific type of event? It truly leaps forward to an even better resource. I like that a lot. I also like with the multiple calendar uh, types, uh, I can customize the availability so that the uh, times are not bananas for the person's time zone. So I've got a Europe time and a West Coast time, you know, being on the East Coast. So I'm not offering times that are like four o'clock in the morning, their time, They're like just to help make that experience a little bit better. Hmm. Thank you, dear listener, for uh, tuning in and listening to our you know, perspective on client onboarding. If you've got a question or you've got, you know, something we forgot when it comes to onboarding and you want to make sure we hear it, go ahead and take a look in the show notes and shoot us an email or shoot us a message. We're always delighted to hear from you all. But until next time, have a great one. Bye.